Last Saturday here at Zion, we had uh, a workshop, a Dream Again workshop, which was uh, about visioning our future here at Zion and, uh, and setting goals. And part of that um, morning was uh, sort of uh, creatively brainstorming and thinking about things that God might want to do here among us and through us and, and in our community. And uh, one of the tables that morning came up with a goal that didn't ultimately get chosen, but uh, in fact, all of the, all of the uh, goals and things are still on the walls back in the parlor if you want to see them. But this was one of the goals for one of the tables last Saturday, and it was supposed to be measurable. You know, we were narrowing down to the end goals, and uh, uh, they were supposed to be measurable. In other words, have some time, time uh, limit to them. And this is what one table came up with last Saturday. By tomorrow, our church family will experience more spirit-filled freedom in worship. And uh, they weren't waiting three months or six months or 12 months. They said, by tomorrow. Now, this one didn't get picked. But in hindsight, we had a very spirit-filled worship service last Sunday. And uh, I think God said, you know, I like that one. <laughs> I'm picking that one. And I, I think just about everybody who was at that workshop last Saturday, including Shelly Kurth, who, who was um, leading the workshop, came up to me during the service or after the service last week and said, you remember that goal? It actually happened. And something amazing uh, as well happened. Not only was this service uh, very spirit-filled, but even the, why should I say even, the traditional service was also very spirit-filled last week. And afterwards, there was a young man visiting from California. He was sitting right up here in the front row. And after the service, he came up to me, and uh, he was just affirming, acknowledging what he sensed God was doing here at Zion. And then he put his hand on my chest, and he said, the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work in you. And he started prophesying over me and praying for me. In fact, he got down on his knees and prayed for my feet and for my body and, and just for God to be at work in me. And uh, meanwhile, folks, I'm greeting, you know, I greet folks after the service, second service. They're waiting in line, and their eyes are getting big seeing this. And I turned to the person right, behi right behind him, and I said, when does that ever happen around here? And she said, it ought to be happening more often. It probably in just a few times in my ministry have I had something like that happen. So none of this should surprise us or make us uncomfortable. The, the with God life that we are invited to is a spiritual and supernatural in its essence. Remove the mystical, the dynamic of the spiritual, and you have a lifeless religion. There's always a danger of religion, even authentic faith, becoming dry and stale and lifeless. The Apostle Paul, I think it was in his letter to Timothy, said that there are folks who have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Uh, they're going through the motions, the ritual, the religious duty, but there's really no life in them. And Jesus, Jesus critiqued much of the religion of his day. He said that it was dead and lifeless. In fact, Jesus said of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day, those who were leading, who were leading by example to the rest of the nation, Jesus said they were whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. They looked good on the outside, but inside, Jesus said, they were full of hypocrisy, bitterness, judgment, and cold hearts. I wonder what Jesus would say about religion or about Christianity today or about the condition of our souls. What's going on inside of you? What's going on in your heart these days? Is it full of resentments, anger, grudges, fears, anxieties, or bitterness? 
There's something about a relationship with Jesus that produces life internally, a, a mystical source of life and love that flows from within, which is the presence of God himself. Jesus said in John 7:37, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within them. There is a spiritual dynamic at work within us when we are in Christ and he is in us. John tells us that this interior fountain is actually the spirit welling up in us. And there are times, however, when it feels like the spring has run dry. There's drought, spiritual dryness, and nothing short of revival will quench the thirst. Our scripture this morning is from the Old Testament. It's the story of the Valley of Dry Bones. I invite you to turn there with me. We're in Ezekiel 37. If you grab a pew Bible, it's on page 840. Page 840. Ezekiel, it's the story of the, the, the Valley of Dry Bones. This is a great story, by the way, for Halloween as we're coming up on that. That's not why I picked it. But as you're driving around this week and you see skeletons on people's front lawns or in their windows, remember this story. And Halloween, which so much glorifies death, I want you to remember that God is in the business of life. Resurrection life. By the way, just, uh, well, let me read it, <laughs> share something else with you. Um, so here it is, Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me up out, he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, this is Ezekiel speaking, and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones, and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there, was, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And breathe and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. O oh, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. God's word. Powerful scripture, but again, fitting one for Halloween. So we had this fall festival this week here at Zion. On uh, Wednesday night and Thursday morning, Jay came in with his youngest daughter, Thea. And uh, how old is Thea? Two? Two-ish? Two-ish? So there were still some things hanging up in the hallways. Nothing scary, just like happy pumpkins and things hanging in the hallways. 
from the, from the night before, and Thea was walking around with big wide eyes, scary, scary, <laughs> scary. Anyway, it was just cute. So this passage is scary. So Ezekiel was a prophet and priest who lived in Babylon during, the, during Israel's captivity. And he lived in a time of incredible international turmoil and unrest, combined with immorality and apostasy, unbelief. Ezekiel's vision is similar in nature to the Apostle John's vision of Revelation. In other words, uh, it's, it's a similar, similar genre of writing, if you will. It's called apocalyptic literature. It's revealing spiritual truths, spiritual realities in symbols, in, in um, picture language, if you will. And uh, the meaning is identified for us in this text clearly. Uh, God says that the, the valley of dry bones is Israel. And so the vision is a prophecy of hope for Israel. And there are three things to note about the bones in reference to Israel. First of all, they've been dead for a long time. They've been dead for a long time as a nation, as a people, and the bones are very dry. Secondly, the bones declared that their hope had perished. They said, our hope is gone, we've been cut off. And the third thing to notice about the bones is that like Israel, they are separated from each other. In fact, they were. There was some, some were still left in Judah, some were in Babylon in captivity, and then the ten northern tribes of Israel, they were already scattered. In fact, historically, we don't even know what happened to them. So Israel scattered everywhere. And the vision was intended to inspire hope for the restoration of Israel. It would happen in two stages. First, a physical or national restoration, and then spiritual renewal. The bones would come together, and then flesh forms on them, but there was still no life in them yet until the Spirit breathes life into them. The Hebrew word for breath, by the way, is ruach. It's the same word for spirit. So really, it's, it's God breathing his breath, his spirit, into these people, into God's people, and enlivening them. And the vision is fitting for us as well. I really believe that it is. There are times when Christianity or the church has become dull, dead, and dry. Some call it a dead orthodoxy, empty ritual and tradition. We're just going through the motions. And there's a, sometimes a lack of spiritual depth and vitality or life in the church. There are times when reform or renewal is needed, when the church or our own spiritual lives are running on E. Some of you are living off the fumes of a spiritual awakening that you had many years ago when you were young. Some of you perhaps decades ago, and you, haven't, you, you remember the fire, the fervor, the passion, the love you had for God. But it's a distant memory. It's been a long time since you had an experience of God in your life. It's even worse for others who have never had a personal experience of God, a personal awakening, and they're clinging in some cases to the coattails of their parents or their grandparents who had a very real relationship with Jesus. And they may recognize that grandpa had it, but they don't quite have what he had. They haven't come into their own vital relationship yet. Listen, friends, God has no grandchildren, only children. There is a need in every generation, in every age, in each life. There is a need for a spiritual awakening, a rebirth, or a regeneration. It begins with the breath of God breathing into you new life renewing, reviving, and igniting in you a passion for God and a love for others. 
I was raised in a Christian home, and I believed, but my spiritual awakening, at least the, the one that I most remember, didn't happen until I was in college. And it was preceded by a time of, of repentance and surrender. Once I humbly and honestly acknowledged to God my own brokenness, my sin, which felt like death, that's when life came, new life. I became a new creation, a new creature. I was dry and dead. In the words of Jesus, I was, a, I, I was, a, I was that whitewashed tomb. Might have looked, I didn't even look that good on the outside. And full of uncleanness on the inside, and Jesus cleansed me. And he breathed his own spirit into me. And I'll tell you what it was like, what it felt like, and I'm, I share this with you. This was my experience. It doesn't mean that everyone's experience is the same. In fact, I think God works differently in each of us. But for me, it was like nothing I had ever experienced before. It wasn't scary. It wasn't frightening. It was a mystical, palpable experience of God's presence and love at work in my life. I came alive. God's word came to life for me as well. And I remember those days following a kind of excitement, a joy, and a peace. But that was only the beginning. And over the years, there have been continued times of both dryness as well as fresh fillings. And to this day, and as recent as last weekend and probably even this week, I have experienced God in powerful ways at work in me and around me. When you look at the state of Christianity in America, it's not a stretch to compare it to this valley of dry bones. In many ways, it seems it's been dead a long time. Not much hope, splintered and separated from each other, but I do have hope. In fact, there are times I hear bones rattling. God can bring dry, separated bones together and put flesh on them and breathe life into them. Friends, God is in the resurrection business. We've been here before. Christianity has enjoyed several awakenings or movements of the Spirit through the ages. They've been very necessary. You know, last week I talked about the Enlightenment and the way that it affected the church. It was really one of the reasons that the church became very dry and dead. And these awakenings that have happened through, through history brought new life to God's people, and they have enlivened the church with renewed vision and hope and impact in the world. And each of these religious revivals is marked by increased faith and piety, as well as spurring religious movements and activity. There have been three major awakenings just in American history alone, beginning in the 1700s with Jonathan Edwards. He's the fiery preacher whose sermon has become an American literary classic. How do you like that? We read it, but we don't allow it to speak to us. Sinners in the hands of an angry God was his famous sermon. He and George Whitfield and others traveled the colonies, sparking revival wherever they went, mostly among lapsed Christians. A second great awakening began about 1800 and focused on those outside the church. And then the third great awakening in America happened between the 1850s and 1900. It's characterized by active missionary work and a number of movements that were, that were birthed out of that, including the Chautauqua movement right here in our own backyard, and there are other Chautauquas around the nation. The YMCA was founded in that period. Thousands came to faith during, an, during that era through the evangelistic work of people like Dwight L. Moody and others. And it came a little bit later, but on the heels of all of that, AA, or Alcoholics Anonymous, began as a decidedly Christian endeavor, extremely successful in those early years when it, when it was Christ-centered. The 12 Steps was birthed from what was known as the Oxford Movement, a renewal movement among Anglicans. 
In fact, I would argue that if you actually worked the 12 steps and made Jesus your higher power, you would experience spiritual renewal. Times are ripe, it would seem, for another move of God's Spirit to bring those dry bones together and put flesh on them and, and birth new life into them. Pray for our nation. You think about this, this imagery of this, of this valley of dry bones is fitting in so many ways. Pray for our nation that is so separated, so divided, so polarized, and for the church that is also divided. Separated bones. Pray that we come together. But more than that, pray for spiritual renewal. Can these bones live is the question. Can these bones live? God is in the resurrection business. People who are on fire, who are awake, alert, alive to God, and who have a fountain welling up in them, find supernatural strength and wisdom and love and determination to share Christ and to be Christ to the world. When dry bones come alive, when dead hearts come alive, when God's people are filled with the breath of God, there is no limit to what God can do. Our own denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, was born also, birthed out of one of those awakenings, not, not the ones in America, but one that happened long before that, in, actually in Germany in the late uh, 1600s, a movement called pietism. It was a movement among Lutherans. It breathed new life into the church. It came to Sweden in about the 1850s, the mid-1800s. And those whose faith was rekindled, who had experienced God in life-transforming ways, brought their faith and their fervor with them here to America. They built churches, sent missionaries to China, Alaska, and Congo. They built here in America, they built orphanages and children's homes, hospitals, rest homes, schools, a college, and a seminary. I'm going to tell you about one more great awakening that happened as well. This is in the early 18th century, so, so in the early 1700s. There was a man by the name of Nicholas von Zinzendorf. He was a, he was a very wealthy man. He was even nobility. His, I think it was his great-great-grandfather was Maximilian, emperor of Germany at one time, at the time of Germany, at the time of Luther. Zinzendorf was a Lutheran, a devout Lutheran, but his, his faith was alive primarily because he had been exposed to pietism, that same movement out of which our denomination was birthed. And he was eager to serve God, eager to be used by God. And somehow God had placed on his heart a desire to establish a Christian commune or community where, where, um, where, uh, where there, a community that would practice simple, pious practices uh, among them. And he was praying and he was asking God to just simply use him and his resources. And almost immediately after praying those prayers and, and wanting to surrender to God and be used of God, a small band of homeless people showed up at his door in Germany, in Saxony. And they were seeking refuge. Um, they were um, They were strangers an exile, refugees, the spiritual descendants of John Huss, if you know his story, he was burned at the stake about a hundred years before Luther was born for translating the Bible into the people's language. So this is 300 years later. These Hussites, these followers of John Huss had somehow managed to 
continue to sort of went underground and they were still around for some 300 years later, but they weren't Catholic and they weren't Lutheran and they weren't Reformed and so they had no place to call home. They came to Zinzendorf and asked if they could settle on his estate. And Zinzendorf welcomed them and gave them a place to live. And they called that place Hernhut, which means the Lord's Watch. Within a few years, that little band of, of people grew to a community of about 300. But the growth was not without its problems. There were squabbles and disagreements economic and, and language diversity. There were religious differences among them. And concerned that this little community was going to fall apart, Zinzendorf left his manor and went and lived in the community with these folks. And he began to implement the things that he had gleaned from his pietist learning. He organized members of the community into small groups where they met in their homes and read scripture together, prayed and worshiped. And spiritual excitement began to brew. They had been, there had been prayer vigils, confession of sin, earnest study of the Bible, and a feeling of expectancy. And then on August 13th, 1727, everything exploded. They were gathered for a worship service. It was actually, there were, uh, it was actually a confirmation service. There were two young girls who were confirmed. And at the end of the service, at the blessing... The church was swept with powerful emotion. Some wept, some sang, some prayed. There was no doubt in their minds what was happening. They were being visited by God's Spirit. Like dry bones, they had come together, and their community was being fleshed out. And all of a sudden, God breathed life into them. These were the Moravians, if you've heard their story before. Don't confuse them with the Mormons. They're the Moravians. And the rest of their story is even more amazing. From that day, that outpouring of the Spirit that they experienced, they began a 24-hour-a-day prayer vigil that lasted 100 years. Now keep in mind, this is a community that's no bigger than Zion Covenant Church. We sometimes have a hard time managing a weekend prayer vigil. They kept the prayer vigil going for a century in a community that was no larger than the membership of this church. It's amazing. And they also um, got connected with, with other Moravians who were scattered around. And, and a few la years later, they launched an extensive foreign ministry, foreign missionary movement. Within 20 years, that, that community that had now grown to about 600. So imagine, you've been to Zion at Christmas or, or, or Easter Imagine the size of our group here at Christmas or Easter, about 600 people. Their community was that size. Within that 20 years, that community had sent out 70 missionaries all over the world in the 1700s. Amazing stories in themselves. The sacrifices they made, giving their lives, even some of them selling themselves into slavery to put themselves into context, into into connection with people who didn't yet know Christ. The Moravians are still around. Many settled when they came here to America. Many of them settled in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I think that's where their school, their seminary is. I know of Moravian groups in Canada, in Detroit, in Wisconsin, in the UP. And though small in number, they have left a large imprint on Christianity. 
In fact, again, they're, even though they've been small in number, their influence is, is incredible. They impacted John Wesley, who attended one of their worship services, and that was his, he said he was strangely warmed in that service. John Wesley went on to found the Methodist church. All across this nation, you'll find Methodist churches everywhere, just about every corner. The fruit of that ministry. Our own denomination credits the Moravians for bringing joy to our worship. There were Lutherans before. There wasn't a lot of joy in that worship. They credit the Moravians for bringing joy to our worship. It's an amazing story of God breathing his breath into a ragtag band of believers who were ready, yielded, and anticipating God's move. Next Sunday here at Zion, as you heard in the announcements already, we're going to have a service of consecration. And it's really, it's really the kind of the culmination of the vitality pathway that we have been on for this past year. But it's also a new day for Zion. Being a healthy missional church isn't about following some prescribed program. It's not even really about ultimately setting, you know, three or four goals for the next year or two. It's about prayer. It's about earnest prayer. And then watching to see where God is at work. Willing to step out in faith. To take risks. And it begins with surrender. And trust. And vulnerability. We're asking God to renew us. To breathe his breath, his spirit into us. Do you desire for yourself a spiritual renewal? a revival in your own life that your faith might be kindled and a passion to pursue Christ and Christ's priorities in the world, it begins with surrender and trust and vulnerability. Ask God to do new work in you. Trust me, he wants to, and he will do that. He's just waiting for you to invite him in. Let's pray. I'm going to ask you just to quiet yourself, and I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to pray with me, along with me, or however God is prompting you in your own heart right now. Jesus said that anyone who believes in him, streams of living water will flow from within them. Do you, do you sense the thirst of your soul? Are you thirsty? Is there a longing to know God? Come to Jesus. He offers you a fountain that will well up in you to eternal life, to life and more life. Asking you right now, as you, with your eyes closed, your heads bowed, that you would just surrender to him. If there's something that you know that is in your life that is getting in the way, confess that. Give it to God. Give him permission to possess you, to fill you. Come, Holy Spirit, God and Lord, fill your people. Breathe life into your church. Lord, you give the healing and grace that our hearts are hungering for.
Come, Lord Jesus, renew, refresh, revive us with living water. We are your church. We are your children. God, breathe into us new life. Remove the deadness, the dryness. Create in us, God, that fountain welling up inside of us, each one of us, God. Breathe new life in us and in your church for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.